Hey, before we get into this episode, just want to give you a heads up. I was a little caffeinated for this one, really fired up. So I apologize for that in advance, but it is a fantastic interview with David. We talk about a lot of stuff, and it's going to be coming up in just a second. I just want to give you a reminder that the best way to support us right now is to subscribe on iTunes, submit a review on there if you like the show. And also, when we offer t-shirts and stuff like that, check those out on Teespring. I'm always talking about them on Twitter. Uh, So you can follow me on there and make sure you're getting a heads up when those are available. Also, you can support us by just, you know, telling a friend, uh, spreading the word through your Twitter and through your Facebook and things like that. Uh, The more support that we get for the show, the more people that we have listening, the more guests that we can have on and the cooler content that we can do. So, again, you guys are the best, uh, but the more support, the better. So hopefully uh, you enjoy what we're doing and you're willing to support us going forward. But without further ado, here is the interview, some awesome stuff with David Kushner. Hope you enjoy it. Back to Back in My Play. I am Kevin Larrabee, and along with me for this episode, I have David Kushner, author of Masters of Doom, a book that I've talked about a couple times on the show. Uh, really love the book. So, David, I'm very happy to have you on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. So, uh, of course, we're talking a little bit off the air. I mean, this book came out uh, a couple years ago, but if people are just hearing about it now, uh, this is a book that, A, you, you go to Amazon.com. It's like 10 or $11, buy it immediately. Even if you don't want to wait until you're done listening to this, just jump on there and get it because it is one of the most interesting and probably the most uh, one of the most important stories in the history of games. And that's obviously uh, the, you know, the two Johns over at, over at id that have now since broken up. But uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk to you about this. Yeah, sure. So the first thing I want to ask you is really what, like growing up, were you into games and stuff like that? Was this uh, one of those stories that you just knew you needed to to research because you kind of loved the games <clears throat> growing up? Well, I I don't mean to date myself here, but yes, I, I definitely preceded the uh, Doom and Quake days in terms of my own personal gaming um, past. You know, I mean, I grew up in. I guess I was, you know, what did I, you know, I, I grew up playing like I was the Atari 2600 phase, you know, I actually um, was playing games on the old the kind of Radio Shack TRS-80. Nice. Um, yeah, old school. Hammurabi, right, was a game where it like came on the cassette and we would take the cassette and we would put it into the, you know, into our regular stereo. And it just sounded like a bunch of screaming, dying aliens or something. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I was a huge gamer as a kid and teenager and really just spent my formative years kind of hanging out at the local arcade, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a lost thing. I was just thinking about that the other day. I mean, you know, the days that uh, that was really such a period of time. I mean, you would just bike down there on a um, Friday night and just uh, spend your lawn mowing money on playing, you know, Defender and Crazy Climber. And mm-hmm. it, those were the days, you know. But um, but yeah, so basically kind of grew up 
playing games. And then, um, you know, essentially what happened was I just, I got out of college and I, you know, I had aspirations to be a writer. I was working, um, at an early dot com in New York, like um, actually before it was really dot com era, it was BBS time on um, the early nineties, and we were all just you know I'm working in this loft in in crappy um, place downtown, and we would just we were actually I think we were all on Max at the time, so we were playing Marathon. You remember Marathon? Did you, Marathon was um, actually created by Bungie, who went on to create Halo, mm -hmm. among other games. But Marathon was one of their early games, and it was basically sort of like a Mac ripoff of Doom. Um, and this would have been right around that time, you know, 93, 94, something like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I played Doom as well, so I was into all that. And Essentially, you know, I was I was looking to write and I got a, I was doing some coverage of of gaming and sort of the nascent inter internet. And I remember one day in particular just being, you know, in a Barnes and Noble bookstore and just looking around and seeing, OK, here's all the books that are on sports and here are books on, you know, films and you name it. I'm like, why aren't there any books on like game makers like to me that was such a huge part of my world and of the world around me um and i guess I, I looked at that as an opportunity you know and then the question was um who to write about and you know that's how i ended up basically narrowing it down to to the the two johns well we're talking i guess about 11 years since it was first published. So uh, again, one of the main things I want to get into a little bit later on in the interview is talking about, uh, you know, your thoughts so many years later, uh, because so many things have happened. These guys have kind of stayed in the, uh, in the limelight for, you know, obviously John Carmack a little bit more with what's going on at Oculus Rift and Facebook and stuff now, but um, I'm really looking forward to, to getting your take on that. Going back to the book, uh, you know, what what was like the research process like for this? Obviously, you you know you had that uh, you know idea. I, I want to research this stuff. What what was that whole process like? How did you even just get started? Um, <clears throat> you know, it started. I would say it started in 1996 with a story, a feature story I did for Spin Magazine, which was about um, this guy who went by the nickname Fook and Fook was in a quake clan, um, by the name of the ruthless bastards. And, you know, I, I had been playing these games for a while, but I was just starting to write for spin and basically pitched them on these two clans that, you know, ruthless bastards. And the other one was called impulse nine. And, you know, you kind of have to time travel to that point in time when, this was really new, you know, I mean, no, certainly nobody at the magazine knew what I was talking about. I mean, they thought I was nuts, you know, and I had to pitch it as, um, cyber sports, which, you know, I've said before, it just sounds totally ridiculous right now, but that was how you conveyed it, you know? And I was like, well, there are these teams, they kind of play each other online. So that ended up, I did a feature on, on the quake, 
on those Quake clans. And just a bizarre twist of fate um, was that, you know, when I did that story, I went down to this student house down in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, and I met all these people. And one of the people I met at the University of Kansas was a young woman there um, named Stevie Case. And Stevie was, um, you know, Stevie was just a college student and a gamer. She would later, years later, she would go on to become John Romero's um, girlfriend. And, you know, they lived together for a while. And she is in Masters of Doom. But this was just kind of odd. I actually met her four years before I really started working heavily on Masters of Doom. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so I sort of, even though I didn't really officially get the deal to do the book and start in the book until 2000, you know, beginning in 1996, I was writing about um, these, particularly Quake and and Doom and these games, and as well as a bunch of other ones. But you know, I, in that interim period of time, I uh, I had covered some gaming convention. You know, Quake. Uh, I don't think it was even called. Maybe it was called Quake Con at the time. I can't. Remember. It was. It was very early, but. There were some other events um, that were centered around the games, and um, and I also did this big piece, which was for Rolling Stone, um, uh, about uh, John Romero mm-hmm. and the making of Daikatana, um, which was going to be his first kind of debut game after leaving um, id Software. So I actually went down um, and did spent a lot of time down there hanging out with Romero and at Ion Storm at the time and kind of doing that. And it all sort of started building up into, into masters, into, you know, getting the deal to do masters of doom. And at which, at which point I moved, you know, I basically up and moved down to Dallas and spent about a half a year, uh, just living there and just, you know, I learned pretty quickly that the game developers are nocturnal. So I got used (laughs) to basically, you know, showing up with my tape recorder at midnight to begin my day of interviews. Not to jump the gun too much, but mm-hmm. uh, going and uh, visiting Iron, uh, Ion Storm at the time uh, with the development of Daikatana, did you get any sense of the mess? <laughs> um, I mean, I got a sense of the ambition, you okay. know. <clears throat> I mean, I remember, you know, the amazing thing was that, you know, Romero – you know, I guess people listening to this probably mostly will know the story already, but, you know, Romero was, he was certainly like sort of a rock star figure in gaming and had the long hair and the interest in heavy metal and all that. And he just, you know, wanted games to be, he, he loved games so much and just really wanted to, uh, create almost like a sort of like a Hollywood glitzy kind of production company studio and you know you go at the time he had the top uh couple floors of this um this the chase tower in dallas and it was amazing i remember i remember specifically going into the elevator and riding up in the elevator with all these bankers you know and then it was like these bankers and there was me and then all of these kind of long-haired scruffy smelly gamer game developers you know and it was just like in the irony of it was that the game developers were going to the top of the building so and all the bankers were just like oh can we come up and see the office like it was such an enigma in that building 
But it was amazing. I mean, that really, in all my years of reporting, I have to say, like, the Ion Storm offices, that was such an incredible uh, sight and moment in time because it was just so funny. I mean, I remember the funniest thing about it. I mean, first of all, it was amazing. Romero totally tricked it out. And he's just an infectious guy. I mean, he's so he's fun to be around, you know, and you can't help but to get caught up in his enthusiasm. So they had really just tricked out the office with, you know, um, just whatever games and foosball and food and junk food. And it was just, um, I think like 20,000 square feet and, um, you know, under, but the thing was, it was literally like under a glass ceiling. Like it was at the top floor, 50, I think it was the 54th floor and it was all glass. And this was actually the reason why they had a lot of trouble renting this bill, uh, leasing this, this, um, space before, because it was just who wanted to be there. It was so hot. Mm-hmm. Think about it. You're like 54 floors up toward the <laughs> Dallas sun, you know, baking. And, but Romero just walks in and sees this and is like, sees like the deck of, you know, the starship enterprise mm-hmm. basically. And he's like, I want this, you know? And so, um, but the funny, but I remember going in there and, you know, didn't take long to realize that like, uh, and I wrote about this in the book, but I'm like, you know, light to game developers is sort of like light to vampires, you know, I mean, it's not a good thing. And not only are, uh, because largely also because it, it, it creates a glare right on the computer screen. So Ion Storm, Romero, I remember he was walking around and telling me how, they had tried all kinds of solutions to deal with the light that was coming in, not to mention the heat. And I, I and I, and you know, and all kinds of shades they had tried this and that. And he was telling me at the time that they were looking to design these like movable sort of cloud-like uh, shades that would sort of could be could could move over the seal, move up against the windows at certain times of the day. None of this was happening, right? So it was just a total, you're talking about a mess. So what happened, I start looking around. Well, the game developers took matters into their own hands. And what they did is they went out, they went out to Home Depot and they bought these like giant rolls of black, like felt sort of fabric. And they rolled it all over, they rolled it above their cubicles. So when you walked into the big, beautiful office, what you just saw were these big black mounds, you know, <laughs> and to get in, you had to part the curtains of this fabric to get into the cubicles. And that's where they worked. So they were working in total caves of darkness that of course were quite, um, aromatic from having no ventilation. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's food everywhere and it was just, I don't know. To me, that was sort of a sign of like maybe the ambition was uh, a bit too too great for reality. You know, I think that might be one of the things I enjoyed the most in the book was just talking about like like you said. I mean, John Romero. John Romero was always like a, a kid with almost everything that he did, talking about the the game room that he set up in his house and how extravagant it was. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, even this year we saw at he went to GDC to basically play Doom Deathmatch, mm-hmm. and uh, 
it's it's just great. I mean, he's obviously passionate. And he's good. He's still doing some stuff in the industry these days. But uh, like I said, I'm kind of jumping ahead. Uh, you obviously uh, start off in the book talking about the the early days before there even was an id, and really when the two Johns started getting together uh, and started like working together was on this this port of Super Mario Brothers three that they were trying to do. Uh, for the PC. So was that really kind of the, just like the seed that got the, you know, the development between each other going? Yeah. I mean, I think that was sort of, and actually it's funny, you know, that moment, that night has become kind of legendary, I think in the world of game development, like people think about that night because it was just sort of this, incredible moment of innovation and possibility, you know, and to me, I, I mean, to take a one little step back, you know, I think that, I mean, look, I've written a lot. I've written a lot of stories. I've written books and everything, you know, masters of doom. It's funny. It's, it's the one thing that it, it is, it found such a, um, it has found such a devoted, uh, audience that seems to keep growing, and um, I think it goes beyond, I mean, yeah, I'll take some credit for having written the book, but I think that there's something in the story of these guys and, and, and the idea, it was really sort of like the ultimate garage band story, you know, of how, um, and I think it's still relevant today in that, you know, all you need, like Carmack says at the end of the book, all you really need is a, is a computer and enough like Diet Coke and pizza to get you through the night. So um, and I think that that, that, that night when they made this, this game, which ended up being called, uh, dangerous Dave and copyright infringement, it, it maybe it epitomizes the possibility of, um, the possibilities of, of game development and of just kind of living your dreams more than anything. And, and yeah, I mean, what happened was that, you know, Carmack had essentially figured out a way to do something really important on a computer that hadn't been done, which was to have sort of fast, seamless side scrolling um, on a PC of the sort that really people had only seen on uh, in arcade games, you know, like Defender and and most um significantly in in Super Mario with a Nintendo. So for reasons that I for ways that I explained in the book, you know, Carmack basically figured out a way to get this to happen on the PC. And actually that night, you know, it was Tom Hall who um was an early member um of id software who said, you know, hey, with this with what you've done here we could actually kind of hack together a version of Super Mario on a PC, which they spent the night doing. And, you know, and the, and the story is that the next morning um, Romero came in to find this floppy disk on his desk that said that, that had Dangerous Dave and copyright infringement on it. And Dangerous Dave was, you know, a character they had created in another game and they had basically kind of replaced Mario with Dave. But other than that, it looked pretty much just like, you know, Super Mario. And, um, and you know, and that, that was it. And that was Romero had, you know, had the, uh, 
the wherewithal to see it and say, Hey, we're out of here. You know, I mean, with this, this technology, we can now do really awesome sort of action arcade games on the PC, which hadn't really been done. Well, I think what you, you did so well was capture the excitement of the event. And I got like, I'm a real big fan of uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley. And I, and I got that same exact vibe. Like they almost knew this was, uh, you know, these were two guys. It was like the two Steve's meeting for the you know yeah. first time and getting together. You know, this is like the same thing, but uh, for video games and the whole time, like I was just, I was like along for a ride because it is exciting to see them, you know, start up their own business and then they, uh, you know, get out their first game and then they get their first major hit and then they start seeing numbers like start coming in that are just blowing them away. They can't believe these sales numbers that are coming in. Um, and I mean, that was the big thing for me. That's why I said uh, before we start recording, I literally read this book on a like one flight. I just <laughs> yeah. buried my face in a book, you know, got a beer and like finished the book in a flight and I uh, just could not. Cannot stop I'm happy to. About. I'm happy to hear that. You know, I like. I love to hear that. Actually, I mean, I hear that. To say, I hear it a lot about like people will talk about how they they can't put this particular book down, and I love that. You know, I definitely try to write it in a way that was, you know, cinematic and just fun. I mean, you know, it's a fun story, and it's tough. I mean, as a writer, and I write a lot about stories that take place you know online there's computers there's technical stuff going on in the stories and it's it's hard it's particularly hard with i mean with masters of doom you know you're trying to strike a balance because john carmack um you know he's such a technical genius he's such a great programmer and you want to convey what makes him a great programmer um but at the same time you know I wasn't writing a book for programmers. I mean, I was writing a book for a general audience. So you didn't want to, you had to, you had to kind of walk the line there. But, um, but that's why, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it was the combination of Carmack and Romero and, and what they did together, mm-hmm. which was so uh, compelling to me you know, and, um, it, it did feel like just one of these great partnerships, you know, and, and it's also worth noting that, that doom and quake and those games were not just the product of those two guys. I mean, obviously there were teams of people who worked on them and I wrote about the other people quite a bit in the book as well, but, you know, in any story you need to kind of streamline it. And I think that for me, it's like, they almost, they represented such kind of left brain, right brain, you know, um, characters, uh, that, that just were able to do these amazing things together. Yeah. How would you classify the working relationship between the two? Because, uh, again, you know, they seem to work so well together, but obviously they had a falling out towards the end and they ended up breaking up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was this great quote from Carmack where, he um, said something about like, you know, I just want to build um, great games and, you know, Romero wants to build an empire or something like that. Great programs. Romero wants an empire. You know, I think that was kind of it. I mean, it was like the two of them, you know, they, they sort of needed each other because you had Carmack who was creating the technology uh, for, for these games, but the, the technology needed the great, 
the game design that that um, brought out, you know, what made it so incredible and vice versa. You know, I mean, Romero needed Carmex technology. So I think with Doom and Quake, it was just that combination. And it really is unbelievable. It sounds hyperbolic, but I was aware of this at the time. I, I became more aware of it the deeper I got into the book. I'm like, holy crap, like, it's unbelievable how many breakthrough, game-changing innovations Doom had. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's really, it's almost bizarre. It's almost bizarre that any one product in any medium could have so much in it. You know, I mean, in, in Doom, you're talking about um, a lot of fir- major firsts, you know, death matching. I mean, you just take death matching alone. Look at look at sort of where that has gone. You know, you'd look at um, uh, mods, you know, and user generated content and what started in the Doom community there. Um, you know, then significance of that. You also just look at the distribution um, method uh, of Doom, which was using shareware and um, and all that. You know, basically kind of giving away some content for free. I mean, these are things, and then you know, and then upselling it later. It's like these are things we take for granted now, but they really Doom sort of synthesized all of this into one product, and that was remarkable. Yeah, you mentioned shareware, but even uh, some first that uh, maybe not a first, but the uh, the task of uploading the shareware version of a hit game to a college server and not thinking that it was going to be constantly right. taken down. <laughs> it's hysterical. I mean, yeah, it, that was that was you know, and, and releasing Doom and kind of unleashing the hordes and saying like it's now going to be online at, at the stroke of midnight or whatever. And then them not really anticipating that so many people would want it, that it would just crash the entire university system. I mean, it was, um, it was the stuff of legend, uh, you know, for sure. Uh, so continuing to kind of talk about the, the early years with those guys. Um, again, this is one of the things that I love, you know, reading books about, you know, the, you know, startup of, of Amazon or Twitter. And, you know, again, you, you mentioned that there really aren't a lot of books on these important events in the history of, of video games, whether, you know, people don't think there's a market for it or what, but, uh, I mean, clearly there's a, there's even like a new book that's coming out soon that, that got optioned for, uh, uh, I guess a comedy movie or something like that. But, um, I don't know. Would, would there be anything else in the the video game industry that you would love to really sink your teeth into and, and research and, and write about? Yeah, I mean, I've you know, it has to be the right story. I mean, I did a book about um, Rockstar Games and Grand Theft Auto. You know, to me, it's just it's more like. And this, I, I suppose, applies to anything. It's just like if the story, if there's a story there, you know, something that can sustain itself over a few hundred pages, like, okay, then it can be a book. And that, you know, that listen, there, there are incredible games that you might think, you know, would merit to have a book written about them, but just maybe there's not the story, you know, maybe there aren't the characters 
Um, so for me personally, I mean, there's only been a couple that I've found, you know, where I found enough there to sustain itself over, at least to do the kind of book that I like to do. I mean, you could write different kinds of books, but the, the sort of character driven stories that I like, you know, the narratives, um, you know, masters of doom, I think because of really ultimately was about the, the, it was sort of a buddy story, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of how I looked at it. Um, and, um, there was the, them coming together and then breaking up and all that. But, um, sure. I mean, you know, who knows what else might come out or, or might, you know, merit that kind of treatment. Uh, speaking of jacked, um, you know, again, talking about Grand Theft Auto recently, it was in the news. You, I mean, you probably saw it, the, the whole Leland Yee thing, uh, mm-hmm. was probably a nice, funny turn of events for you. Yeah, well, he was he was among he was among the politicians who were, um, you know, campaigning um, on this notion that Grand Theft Auto was destroying the the fabric of youth, and um, of course, I forget what it was. What it was it exactly that he got caught up in. Recently. Oh, he had like something rocket firearms. Launch- yeah, he was or selling something. rocket launchers to <laughs> yeah, the mo- like he was great? like the craziest shit you could. I know, probably, I like this guy, <laughs> right? So he's like trying to outlaw virtual rocket launchers, but he's you know selling real ones. Um, yeah, I mean that was that was not surprising. I mean, <laughs> it's just not surprising. I mean, I think that fortunately, I think we're getting past this era of. Um, you know, video games are evil. I think it's because just the, the generation gap is now closing. And I think the people in power and the media especially are gamers, you know, and I think that a lot of those stories were coming out at a time when the, the media establishment just did not play or understand games. And to them, they were treating games just like the media established treated rock and roll, you know, when it first came out, like they didn't know what it was. And so they demonized it. So I, I do. I'm confident that we're we're pretty much past that. I mean, look at GTA Five. I mean, yeah. I mean, there was barely. I don't know that there were any real stories about. Maybe there were a few, but nothing really at the scale of uh, you know the kinds of stories you'd see after GTA Three and Vice City. Um, so, you know, I think that Jacked. I mean, that story and the story of Rockstar Games and Grand Theft Auto. Like to me, that was almost like the next chapter in. The, the sort of the the story of games that I was personally telling, you know, I mean, I think you had Doom and Quake um, as being these kind of really innovative lightning rod games in um, primarily, you know, in the 90s. And then you had GTA in, um, you know, in the 2000s. Um, and I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know as far as this decade. I don't know. I don't think there's another game that sort of fits in that. You know, that was sort of the awkward adolescence of gaming. I think it was those decades. Mm-hmm. You could also argue, I think the 80s too, but it wasn't so much in in video games as much, you know, you might look at it something like even Dungeons and Dragons, you know, this idea of games being dangerous. And I do think that that's over now, you know. So if you were to write a book now, I mean, I, I mean, people have. I mean, there was this, I think there was a book about Blizzard and all that, but to me, the world of mobile games and all that is really very interesting, you know, and where where that's going to head. 
Yeah, you, you, you do talk about that quite a bit in the book, too, with, uh, you know, doom being uh, a big part of the, you know, the government trying to regulate the sale of violent video games and even trying to uh, eliminate that uh, instead of allowing ratings and, and things like that. So, uh, again, this there's so much in this book that is just uh, a vital to the history of games. And, you know, again, it's uh, kind of uh, also a testament to... Uh, you know, Id and the two Johns for putting super violent stuff out that <laughs> allowed uh, the boundaries to be pushed to where they got. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also wanted to kind of ask you about, you know, again, starting off talking that it, it was about 2003. It's been, it's been quite a, quite a few years. Oh, if, if you were to, to add a couple chapters to this book, what what would you want to write about? Uh, because I think you wrap up, if I remember correctly, um, with the mention or the announcement of Doom 3 yeah. in the book. Well, you know, yeah, and that was sort of, it felt like, it, it sort of felt thematically like a good place to end for me because, um, you know, it was the continuation of Doom. It was like Carmack kind of sticking to his guns, so to speak. Um, you know, and, and it, it was a bit of a breaking off point for, whoops, for Romero. Um, it was also just because, you know, that was around the time that I finished the book. So that's, that's what, that's what I had to talk about. But I went on to do, I mean, there is sort of a bit of an epilogue that is, um, Googleable on the internet, which is a piece I did for Wired, um, which was about, um, the making of doom three, which I didn't write about at all in masters of doom because I had finished the book by the time they were really getting into it. So I did write about doom three, but I don't know. I mean, I think that if there was another chapter to do or almost like, um, a, a sort of, uh, another epilogue would be right now. Um, because, it's really interesting with John Carmack's involvement in virtual reality and the fact that, you know, he left id software, um, not so long ago to be the chief technical officer of Oculus VR, which is of course this, um, um, virtual reality company that people are, (laughs) that's very much in the news lately for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, in addition, including Facebook having bought them for, for $2 billion, but you know that ambition of Carmax, um, and w- this what he what he told me fifteen years ago was this moral imperative to create virtual reality. Um, that's very much a big part of Masters of Doom. You know, I mean, the pursuit of virtual reality, the 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 allure of it, the importance of it. I mean, that that actually is a really big part of the book, um, which for Carmack, I know, and a lot of these guys started with a holodeck you know, seeing the holodeck on next generation. Um, so yeah, I think that that it's a very, it's very interesting that the God, who would have thought that this is where I would have headed, you know, 15 years or 10 years later. To take a step back, you know, I think where the book does end, uh, you know, in the paperback form, I think mm-hmm. that is kind of perfect because they like the, the story is about the two guys. It's about yeah. the two Johns. And once they broke up, I mean, they it's, I guess you could argue that they were never as successful as they were together because, you know, Doom 3 was 
it was pretty good. And then he went on to, um, you know, make a couple more games, like more versions of id Tech and things like that. And obviously yeah. Romero with uh, Daikatana, which probably uh, did not make the publisher super happy with the numbers that it <laughs> came out with. Um, and uh, I think it's just a good place to, to end it. I don't think there is much more to that story because they're not together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, that was the, that was the kind of marking point for that, but um, you know, I mean, Romero, it's, it's funny because Romero's, he, he actually has done quite a bit since then in ways that maybe people aren't aware, you know, I mean, being involved um, in companies that had a hand in very successful titles that just were not his, you know, but he was, um, behind the scenes in these companies, like the one that did like the Lego, um, Marvel online. And, um, you know, it's interesting with, with Romero also, I think one thing he doesn't get a lot of credit for is that, um, he, I think has, he's become, he's really one, he's a very dedicated and I would say important, um, historian of gamings. Like John, you know, Romero was always so passionate as a player and as someone who just loved games. And in a way, that's what kind of got the better of him, too, because there was almost no bigger fan of the id games than John Romero. And I think that people sort of uh, didn't know how to take that. Like they saw that as hubris. And there was hubris there, certainly. But there was also just genuine, crazy enthusiasm for games, you know. But um, Romero has been involved in like uh, game studies programs at SMU and all that. And he's just a wealth of knowledge. And it was definitely helpful when writing Masters of Doom because, you know, he knew so much about the history of gaming and was very aware of sort of the place of its games in that history. And I think that that's what comes that's what it all kind of came down to is that he could see what Carmack was doing and say, wow, here are the things that we can do that nobody has done before with this sort of technology. Um, <laughs> tell you, I just thought of something funny. I don't know. Have you watched the show Silicon Valley? Uh, yeah, I just, I've watched the first three, not the most recent though. Oh, is there, are there more than three yet? Cause I think or maybe I think... there's only three. Okay. So what happened in the last, not to do spoilers here. I don't know when you're gonna... <laughs> put this online but okay spoiler alert as we we get into it but what was the last one that you watched uh it was i guess i think it was when he was trying to buy the name for pied piper maybe that oh okay okay when where the one goes to have like a vision quest yeah. in the desert okay or maybe it was it, it could have possibly no i think that 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 sounds about right to me Okay, well, there's another one after that, and I, I think, and I won't spoil oh, it you, for you. I, I have it waiting for me on the DVR anyways, so you Should can sp- go for it. Yeah. You want me to spoil it? I'll okay. watch it for the laughs. Okay, well, basically, in the next one, it's like, uh, and I forget the guy's names, but there's the guy who, um, there's sort of a Carmack and Romero, basically, mm-hmm. of Silicon Valley, right? So there's the main guy, and I don't remember his name. And there's the guy who kind of runs the incubator, yeah. who's just such a great character. But, you know, it's funny. In this next episode, what happens is they come together. The show, I think, by the way, is brilliant. I mean, I am such a fan because 
I've been in that world for so long and it's so spot on, <laughs> you know, it's so spot on. And I would be flattered to think or know that, you know, someone in that, in that, in that crew, no, you know, red masters of doom. Cause there are things in there like, and I think these two guys, it is very Romero and Carmack like, because what happens in this next episode is the other guy, the business guy, kind of like the Carmack guy has the great technology, but he can't come up with what the vision is for it. And it's just causing him all kinds of stress. And then the other guy kind of comes on board to provide the vision and it sets that up as them being like, you know, the job, I think he even says like, you know, I'll be the jobs to your Wozniak or whatever. <laughs> but it's very interesting. I think if you look at, um, you know, if you look at the, um, technology industry and about these these duos you know and the google guys and um jobs and wozniak and carmack and romero you know there is this there's something about these duos that that seem to have that left brain right brain combination which is really dynamic uh speaking of film we did get a question uh from someone in the audience that that wanted to know or at least they they saw you know going uh seems like they jumped on Wikipedia before uh, yeah. I announced the, the interview. But uh, I guess in 2005, it was hinted that uh, a film about the book uh, would be happening. Is that, that still a possibility? Well, um, you know, Hollywood is uh, what you would call a slow boil. And, <laughs> um, some things boil more slowly than others. Mm -hmm. uh, but the good news is, is that, yeah, I mean, it's still it's it's still alive. And, um, you know, it, it, it kind of ebbs and flows as far as where it's at. But there are definitely um, there are efforts still being made to make that happen. And, you know, things have changed since the book came out. I mean, maybe you know, when the book came, when the time it was originally kind of optioned, um, it was maybe a little too early, but now I think, you know, it's a different time. There are different outlets. And I actually get a lot of emails asking me that same question. So I know, you know, I mean, I'd love to see it happen. Maybe hopefully it will. Well, you know, again, just being a, a fan of like Pirates of Silicon Valley, it's, it's, it is really, if you can get the right people to do it, you know, it's, it's just really, uh, even that much more exciting to, to see it in action. Yeah. Um, and, and things like that. And it's, it's kind of a timeless story now. And now that Carmack's really back into the limelight, you know, even more so now that it is part of a $2 billion, uh, venture, um, yeah. you know, hopefully they can, they can make it happen. It's something I'd like to see. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, you know, I kind of I don't want to wrap it up too too early, but the uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about was just kind of in all this research that you did for this book, like you span a ton of time uh, from you know the John's childhood all the way up until like we said the uh, Doom Three being announced. What what were some of the things that really stood out to you? Like, man, I, I just can't believe that you know this happened, or I can't believe that uh, you know. Th this event took place just because uh, it was, it almost seems surreal. Well, you know what? Um, that happens so many times in the reporting of that book. I cannot even count how many times there were just these weird connections and parallels, things that even, you know, that's the funny thing is like, 
it, you know, and I heard from a lot of people who were in the book after the book came out. I mean, including the Romero and Carmack, um, who I've stayed in touch with, you know, both of them. But, um, you know, it's funny because I think for them, they didn't realize half of what was going on or the weird, the weird connections. Like, for example, I mean, uh, there was the scene of them they buy a Pac-Man machine off of the back of a truck um, when they are moving their company from Wisconsin down to Mesquite. And I hadn't realized that, you know, Mesquite was one of the like few cities in America that had actually um, been trying to ban these arcade games like back in the eighties. So just kind of the, like, the irony of them like showing up with a ba- with a Pac-Man machine in their truck to this <laughs> town that was trying to ban games and the fact that these guys would come and create like such controversial games. Um, you know, there were little things like that. I think there were, um, you know, the, the story of uh, this was actually one, a fun one, which was like, there was this whole story about, Bill Gates, you know, and what happened was that Doom, um, one of the interesting little factoids out of this whole thing was that, you know, Doom was actually sort of more installed than Windows 95 at the time. Um, (laughs) And that, um, you know, basically Bill Gates wanted to show that PCs um, could be a platform for gaming, which, you know, the id guys more than anyone else had proven. So he wanted to, um, use doom to, um, to promote this. And, um, you know, this was basically, um, a a story where he had ended up, um, sort of being talked into shooting a video, um, which was going to be for uh, a, a conference up at Microsoft. And basically in the video, you know, he puts on a trench coat and takes a shotgun out and he is like giving a speech and then he starts shooting at um, imps and, you know, undead soldiers and doom. Um, the more relaxed version of Bill Gates. Yeah, right. And if you think about it now, I mean, my guy, can you imagine anyone putting on a trench coat and holding a shotgun. I mean, that is so... Wouldn't work so well. Yeah, so... But, of course, you know, and I think that... And um, when I heard about this while I was reporting the book, I'm like, this is such a crazy story, and the event where this took place was so insane. And um, and I heard this straight from the guy who organized it, um, Alex St. John, and I said to him, I'm like, where is this video? I gotta see this video. And he didn't, he either, he genuinely didn't know where it was or he just didn't want to leak it out. Basically, there was no seeing the video, um, which basically the video ended with a sort of a bloody, said to have ended with this bloody Microsoft kind of logo and tagline that said, who do you want to execute today? You know, Um, and um, the book came out and then there were some readers of the book who wanted to really track the video down. So they stayed on it and stayed on it and stayed on it. And finally, I guess, you know, in light of the publication of the book and this, this, this demand to see it, 
um, Alex uh, finally relented and and put it out there. So now, of course, you can see it on on YouTube, and it's hysterical. Holy crap! I'm going to be doing that. As soon oh, as you I haven't go. seen it? It's funny. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's classic. Uh, just a couple of things that I uh, wrote down that that were really interesting for me is that the uh, you know they both had interesting childhoods in the fact that they kind of they were both obviously rebels uh whether it was with their parents or with the you know the schools and things like that uh you know where Mauro had a very interesting relationship mm-hmm. um with his uh, was it his father or his stepfather 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 yeah and just how he'd basically just say like you know screw him I'm still going to go to the arcade like just brush it off and I'll deal with the consequences later. I'll, you know, I'm going to go program and, uh, you know, deal with the consequences later. Uh, again, just a really interesting insight into the, the personalities and, and the development of these guys that I think uh, everyone should should really check out and get a better understanding of uh, where they're coming from. And you could probably get a, a even better understanding of, you know, why there's so much demonic stuff in mm. uh, the Doom games and uh, why violence was uh, kind of a, a big part in it and things like that. But um, yeah, they, um, I mean, he was definitely, you know, I mean, Romero endured um, some physical abuse as a kid from his stepfather. And I opened the book, you know, with the scene of him getting beaten by his stepfather for getting caught playing, you know, asteroids actually down at the arcade. So, um, yeah, I, I do think that it was, it was probably exercising some demons for him, you know? Um, and I think for Carmack, you know, Carmack, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, he was certainly, you know, not to psychoanalyze, but, you know, he was a super smart guy, obviously, who um, was, you know, the, these kind of people, we know them now. But back then, as I think it's particularly if you were a kid growing up in an American suburb in like the early 80s, you know, there was no you didn't aspire to be a nerd at that time. You know what I mean? It was, it was not as cool. There wasn't like as much career opportunity in nerdism or let alone gaming. So, you know, I think it was hard not to feel like an outsider and maybe to feel angry about that. Um, and you know, there's this great story of Carmack basically creating thermite and melting a window, you know, to break into his school and steal some computers that he could work on. Um, but yeah, I do think that all of that fed into, into the games and into maybe some of the violence of the games. Um, but I also think that it was sort of a sign of the times too, because if you look at the the era that those games came out, you know, like in the early nineties, I mean, this was, I mean, look, Romero was very much into metal, you know, heavy metal. I mean, there was like, the guys were into movies like Evil Dead, um, you know, Aliens. And so the idea of kind of bringing all of those influences into a game was a big part of it, too. You know, um, metal, um, you know, sci-fi, B-movie, horror kind of stuff. Um, it was just... I think it was inevitable that we would start to see games that were reflecting that 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 part of the popular culture too. 
Yeah, just super interesting stuff. Um, for people out there, again, if, if you're listening, uh, you can you can grab the book easily on on your Kindle, or you can get the book on on Amazon. It's even uh, on Audible.com if you like to to do the audio uh, book thing. And I have to say, with the audio book, like it's it's definitely the coolest audio book I've got out there. And what I think so it was such a super choice because they got Will Wheaton. Um, right, to, yeah. to do the audio and he does an incredible job. I mean, he does all the voices. I mean, you can just l- listen to it for him alone. You know, I did so. double dip. I kind of bought the, I, I got both because I got an auto. I mean, if you're out there and you have an audible account, you get credits every month. So I had to, oh, to my okay. library too. So, um, yeah, David, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on. This is just Again, going back and looking at the the important events in the history of games as we see it today, you have your Super Mario Brothers, you have you know the two Johns, you have the the Sega, you have the fight between Xbox and PlayStation now, and all that stuff. But you know this is really one of the most important things that if you're into video games and you're into the history of this stuff, you really need to go um, check out Masters of Doom. It, it should be on your bookshelf and. Uh, you will literally, if you're like me, you will just sit there and like eight hours later, you're going to be like, man, that was awesome. Um, so yeah, like I said, David, I can't uh, thank you enough for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. So uh, that is going to do it for, for this episode. Um, you know, Don't forget to jump on iTunes. You can subscribe uh, on there for the podcast and you can submit reviews on there. We're just breaking 100. So if you want to... Uh, be getting us closer to 200 i guess reviews or whatever that would be awesome and uh that is it we'll be back with some more stuff next time uh and again david thank you again no problem thanks all right man we're out that was